0: listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. This podcast was recorded on the traditional ancestral and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. To
1: learn more about the land you are on, visit native-land.ca. welcome to Women's Health Interrupted, a Women's Health Research Cluster
0: podcast. I'm Rebecca Barron. And I'm Sydney Clips. Through scientific inquiry and storytelling, this podcast brings you content about women's health from many angles. You may be wondering, who are we? What is the Women's Health Research Cluster and why are we here? You may also have a lot of questions about women's health. Given the way the world is set up currently, there are lots of barriers to understanding women's health and even understanding why it should be researched at all. Stay tuned as we dive into this
1: and so much more.
0: The Women's Health Research Cluster, or WHRC for short, is a multidisciplinary global network of researchers and stakeholders that catalyze, expand, and promote impactful research to advance women's health. The head of the WHRC, Dr. Lisa Gallia, is ultimately our boss. She is a fierce woman's health advocate and a wealth of
1: knowledge on the subject. Health Interrupted was born out of the idea to share research, and we thought what better way to start out than by speaking with the woman who set this project into motion in conversation with another huge changemaker in the field, Dr. Victoria Gay. Senior Director of Strategy at the BC Women's Health Foundation.
0: But before we go to this special conversation, we want to answer, why is this so important?
1: From our perspective, there is a critical need to study individual differences across women and to consider how different physiological or hormonal experiences, such as menstruation, pregnancy, and menopause, can influence
0: women's health
1: and treatment.
0: In addition to that, we also need to understand how gendered lived experiences and expectations may drive some of these disparities. We want to recognize our power and privilege as two cisgendered white
1: women, so we asked around to a more diverse cross-section of folks and asked them, what does women's health mean to you? Here's what they had to say.
0: You know, to me, women's health is so much more than the biomedical model of health that a lot of people think of when they think of healthcare. Uh, Women are so integral to societies and their communities, and working towards a world where women never have to be held back because of their health, that's really exciting to me. For me, it means going back through the plethora of research done only in men and the basis of many of the therapeutics and treatments out there today, and seeing how this research applies to women to strengthen the quality of treatments suggested for two sexes, and hopefully later all sexes. In addition, it means taking the spotlight off of basing therapeutics, generally off of men's health. Women's health is so much more than reproductive health. It encompasses every single aspect of a woman's body and is touched by every facet of her life. Women experience poorer health from misdiagnosis, minimized symptoms, greater burdens of specific diseases, and poorly targeted treatment. Our
1: goal here is to destigmatize discussions around women's health issues in a multidisciplinary way that is true to the spirit and setup of the network. As a knowledge translation initiative to share the incredible work these scientists, people with
0: lived experience, and partners are doing around the world. And so every month, this podcast will explore women's health across four overarching and multidisciplinary themes general health and wellness, brain health. Socio-cultural determinants of health, as well as politics, policy, and advocacy.
1: Through these themes, we will bring episodes on a variety of topics, from genetics to periods
0: to income inequality, and so much more. Our next four episodes will give you a flavor of what to expect from each theme, so stay tuned. Why? Cause no one can do it like go we do it like we do it like we do it. Cause no one can do it, like go we do it, like we do it like we do it. Cause no one can do it, like we do it, like we do it like we do it. Cause no one can do it, like we do it, like we do
1: it like we do it. Lisa Gallia is a professor in the Department of Psychology and a member of the Center for Brain Health, director of the graduate program in neuroscience, and lead of the women's health research cluster at UBC. She is also a scientific advisor at Women's Health Research Institute at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Gallia also has her PhD in neuroscience from the University of Western Ontario and was a postdoctoral fellow from the Rockefeller University. Dr. Gallia's research investigates how sex hormones influence brain health and disease in both females and males. The main goal of her research is to improve brain health
0: for women and men by examining the influence of sex and sex hormones. Dr. Victoria Gay is the Senior Director of Strategy at BC Women's Health Foundation. Victoria has a PhD from University College London and 15 years' experience in research, strategy, and innovation across multiple sectors. Since joining the foundation in 2018, Victoria has been instrumental in driving the BC Women's Health Foundation from a foundation that served BC Women's Hospital to a provincial foundation dedicated to improving women's health. She leads the research, innovation, education, and awareness portfolios and associated strategic partnerships. She has also been heavily involved in the foundation's advocacy efforts these past few years to encourage transformational investments in research, policy, and practice.
1: Welcome to this week's episode on medical research bias, why focusing on sex differences is not the full answer for better women's health.
0: Today on the show, we are so thrilled to be joined by Dr. Lisa Gallia and Dr. Victoria Gay, co-authors of the report, The Research Divide, which was published by the BC Women's Health Foundation. We are so honored to have you both here with us today. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having us.
0: Let's start off with a few clarifying definitions for our audience. What is the difference between sex and gender?
2: Right, so I'll take this one. Um, Sex, you can define this as the biological and physiological characteristics of males and females. So we're talking about your gonads, your hormones, um, and gender is a much more difficult concept, but I'll give you the who definition, which is that it is whatever a given dis- society deems appropriate for men versus women in, in terms of their roles. So you can think of that as taking, you know, the man taking out the garbage maybe in Canada, or there are certain laws in middle in some countries where women are not allowed to drive; they're not allowed to get a driver's license. So that would be that's the way that the who considers gender. But obviously, more people think of gender as gender identity, and whether you're a man, woman, gender diverse, gender fluid, LGBTQ2S, two-spirited if you're Indigenous. And so that's also not the whole encompassing idea of gender. Uh, And Laureen Graves and Joy Johnson came up with another construct which encompasses four things, which is gender identity, gender roles, gender relations, and institutionalized gender. You can see that from all of these standpoints, you might have different experiences depending on your gender, right? Going into a hospital or going into a university that might impact you, or you might have different relationships with people of authority based on your gender. And all of that experience could, could be referred to as gendered experiences.
1: Right. So so now that we know a bit more about the difference between sex and gender, so let's to kind of dive into the bigger topic at hand, which is medical research bias. So we know medical research hasn't served both sexes and all genders equally, and that there is an ongoing bias that has significantly impacted women's health. Can you tell us a bit more about what that bias is and how did
2: it come about? Sure. So. I would say that we know it's very well known that women are more likely to be misdiagnosed than men are. They're more likely to suffer side effects from drugs. And on average, it's about two years longer to be diagnosed with the same disease in men versus women. So all of these are come about because of the fact that we don't have enough studies examining the differences between sex and gender and how that might influence a number of these things. So we know there are uh, sex differences, and I refer to the biological Uh, characteristics, but sex differences in the prevalence, which just means how many people get say depression and schizophrenia or Parkinson's disease, for example, and then the manifestation. So that would be like the symptoms of disease. So women we know are more likely to show anxiety along with depression compared to men. And we see sex differences in disease progression. So females are more likely once they're diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease to progress a lot faster to full-blown dementia and through the disease that males are. And with multiple sclerosis, it's the opposite. Females are more likely to be diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, but males, once they get it, are more likely to progress faster. And then the last one would be treatment. And so very rarely is treatment considered in a number of, or, or treatment is considered of course with all of these diseases and we have lots of good treatments, but most of the research that is out there is examining males and male only research. And that's that has been a problem for a long time.
3: Yeah. And I would say Lisa speaks so well towards the kind of biological perspective and, and the scientific side of things, which I can't necessarily speak to, but I would definitely say that this lack of information is affecting women's health outcomes and and the way they're treated by the health system and the BC Women's Health Foundation we're really striving to ensure that women can become, be and stay healthy but without that knowledge, without that understanding of the differences in how gender and and sex are affecting women's health, uh, their unique needs, we really don't have the information to support all of the health issues, diagnose some of the women's specific health issues so If I can give a bit of an example, so the data shows, and we we highlighted this in in a report that we did in Her Words, but the data shows that in the majority of cases, it takes several years to diagnose endometriosis and that's a painful disorder that affects one in 10 women. So that's millions of women worldwide. And because there's that lack of awareness and understanding and lack of research about that condition by both women not knowing about it and healthcare providers not having all the information, there hasn't been enough research, that can delay the diagnosis several years. So I'll give another example of the lack of knowledge. Actually, the majority of patients with medically unexplained symptoms, so 70% of patients with medically unexplained symptoms are women, and they're frequently diagnosed and incorrectly attributed to psychological issues. So doctors are more likely to diagnose women's pain as psychologically less uh, likely to admit women for testing and are inclined to give women less pain medication than men. In fact, because we don't know much about women's bodies, women are experiencing misdiagnosis and and minimized symptoms. And we actually did a high-level survey of a thousand women in BC to see if this is happening right here in in BC. And we had a look at the questionnaire and over 50% of women that were interviewed felt that a physician had diminished their symptoms, particularly those with chronic conditions. So all of those stats and all of that information is in a report that the BC Women's Health Foundation released called In Her Words, but it just kind of shows some of the data and the details of of how that lack of information, that lack of funding in women's health research, that lack of including women in in clinical trials, and that lack of understanding that we have about women's unique health needs is, is really manifesting in BC and worldwide. Yeah. If I can
2: also just add to that. Yeah. I don't think we actually said that, you know, the majority of studies out there from both a preclinical perspective and a clinical perspective, the majority of the studies don't look at either sex differences or don't even include females in the design or, or women in the design. So clinical trials there's actually no official mandate in Canada for clinical trials to, to include women in the design. So even now, we don't have that. In the U.S., they do have it, but it was for, it's only for NIH studies, which is the National Institute of Health. That's a major funding body in the U.S., but only 5% of clinical trials are funded through NIH. So even though NIH has a mandate, that it, it still isn't translating into the majority of clinical trials. And another thing I wanted to say is even when clinical trials are run, they're not analyzing by sex. And I I think we'll get to that a little bit later, because I also wanted to say, I think part of the reasons there's obviously some gendered aspects to misdiagnoses that um, Victoria was alluding to. But I also think there's some biological differences, too. So I talked about the manifestation of disease being different and symptoms being different. And what is really curious to me, and I want to study this a little bit more, is that women are often thought to have, quote unquote, atypical symptoms. So that's also true in, in depression. We know women are more likely to suffer from depression than men are, but yet they're, they're called atypical. Like, wouldn't you, if, if the majority of people are showing anxiety with depression, wouldn't that be a, a typical symptom, not an atypical symptom? And another one I think most listeners would be aware of is heart attack symptoms, right? They can manifest similarly, but they can also manifest quite differently. So females don't have those sort of stereotypical, you know, numbness in the arm. They'll have something else, like they won't feel really well. And sometimes they have jaw pain. And so because, you know, oh, these are the symptoms of a heart attack, and we see that all the time in movies and TV shows, that's not what you'd see typically in a woman, or you're more likely to see some of these other symptoms that are not necessarily associated with heart attacks. So I I think that's where a lot of the, I think the misdiagnosis piece is a lot of different things, but I think part of it is this
3: a quote unquote atypical symptoms in, in females. And that's just because we haven't studied it. I think that's a really good point, Lisa, and I think the Heart and Straight Foundation did a really good piece and promotion to raise awareness of those differences of the way that the heart attacks manifest in women is so different. Many physicians weren't aware of it. Many people were being turned away at uh, the emergency room because they were not showing the quote unquote typical Symptoms, and they released something called "Misunderstood," which was a report on really just to raise awareness about those different ways symptoms manifest. And I will just add as well that you mentioned mental health there and and the prevalence of depression. While I'm not a medical researcher, one thing that I do know that we looked at was that the prevalence of mental health issues during reproductive life stages, so when start the menstrual cycle, pregnancy, postpartum, and menopause, really adds to the complexity of care, but Most mental health therapy is based on male experience, so without including any of those kind of nuances of the fact that the unique features of women's bodies actually might impact and integrate that. And Lisa, I know you're the expert in that that area as well. No, so no. I, that, <laughs> I can't speak to it so, so, so much, but that was just something that really resonated with me when I was looking through that research.
2: Well, another thing that strikes me when you're speaking is, you know, the endometriosis facts. And I have a colleague of mine who was diagnosed too late with ovarian cancer, and now she's in the terminal stages, and she's in her early 40s. And so I think part of what this tells us, right, I think it's seven years to diagnosis with endometriosis or something. There's a couple things, but, but both of these diseases are female only, right? So- why don't we know enough about them? And why don't our primary care physicians know enough about them so that they can send us to the appropriate tests to determine whether or not we have endometriosis or ovarian cancer. But, you know, yes, there are symptoms that are not, you know, a large prostate that you could see or something, but some of the symptoms are very like painful periods. And I was in another session where somebody said periods are not supposed to be painful. If you have a painful period, that means something. And I sat in the audience and I know other people did as well. And went, what? (laughs) I thought they, I just thought everybody experienced. And it's not that I haven't gone, you know, to be a little personal, gone to the doctor and said, oh, I have painful experience, but they're just brushed off as that's just normal. And that's what we have to stop. We have to bring the awareness to the physicians, awareness to the people so that they can say, wait a minute, this is not normal.
0: Absolutely. I think you really highlighted that those gaps in knowledge translation are cultural. They're from the healthcare practitioner aspect, as well as the research side. That story happening over and over. And so I think it just really highlights the deficiencies from both that atypical label, as well as not studying it at all.
3: Example is just devastating to hear, Uh, but it's really important that we have those stories highlighted because we can talk about it. We can release papers about it. We can raise awareness about it we can do advocacy about it but really it hits home to most people when you add that personal story which is unfortunate but that is the reality and it's really i'm just really grateful for for that person to to have shared their story to just highlight actual realities and what that actually means
0: Absolutely. And that's what we're, we're trying to highlight here. So we're going to switch gears a little bit. Could you set the record straight about male versus female hormones? How do our fluctuations differ and how should this be considered within clinical trials? And how does this impact the way that women are treated from these clinical trials into our current healthcare system?
2: Yes, of course. So I think one thing that we probably have said, but maybe hasn't highlighted yet, is that most of the studies out there are either are, are looking at male only studies Now there has been quite a push recently from CIHR, which is the Canadian Institute for Health Research, which is our main sort of funding organization for medical research in Canada, and NIH, which is the US equivalent for studying either sex as a biological variable, which is the US, or sex and gender-based analysis, which is in Canada. And that has driven out publications in the medical literature so that they are including both sexes in, in the studies. That's great, but it's about 50%. It's still not, you know, we went from like, 20%, depending on the discipline that you're talking about, to 50, that's great. What people are not doing is analyzing by sex. Again, we'll probably talk about that in just a bit. So if you don't analyze, if you don't actually separate the data and look at it and see, oh, do you see something statistically different in one group versus the other, then that's a problem. A lot of researchers will tell you they don't want to add females because they're too, we're too complex, which, you know, maybe we are very complex, but we're not complex because of our hormones. So this is one of these sort of myths, and I'm going to try and bust this as quickly as i can sure we have everybody knows menstrual cycles right Uh, so it's like 20 28 days or so of of these hormonal fluctuations and there's a lot of jokes about you know mood changing and symptoms and you know premenstrual symptoms and all those kinds of things and so those messy hormones that are fluctuating so dramatically over these periods it's too hard for the medical literature it's too hard to sort of control for separate out and so let's just stick with males because they're easier same thing in the animal world if you're using my and, and rats, they have instead of 28 days, a four day cycle. So it's just, quote unquote, easier for people not to include them. However, when there have been now many studies where they've looked at the variability between males and females, humans, mice, rats. There is no difference in the variability, how much on anything like a behavioral, physiological, but what that variability might actually be caused by hormones. The thing is that in males, hormones vary dramatically. So in males, human males, you see about a 50 fold reduction in testosterone levels daily. So not, there's no monthly pattern in males, but there's a daily pattern. So my question back to medical researchers and the audience is who's more, if you've got to talk about monthly fluctuations in females and daily fluctuations in males for testosterone, who's more hormonal now I ask you? But yes, we also have many other hormones involved like stress hormones. Those are on diurnal or daily fluctuations in both males and females, humans, as well as animals. And so I think traditionally people have thought of that hormonal variability as being too messy, but as Victoria alluded to earlier, those transitions, those large hormonal and reproductive transitions, do affect our health and can affect our health long-term I love to talk about pregnancy and how it's sort of a barometer for future disease a little later on, but it's important for us to study how these th- different things might influence disease risk, disease symptoms like puberty, like menopause or andropause and males, all of these aging, all of these things will influence disease risk, disease symptoms, and maybe even treatment. Mm.
1: So I guess also like in terms of the benefits and drawbacks of studying both males and females. So I know that males are typically the model of study or the ones who are studied the most in research and we have the best understanding of, you know, drug treatments and how that works on their bodies. What about including older women, let's say seniors, for example? So what recommendations would you have to researchers who are trying to incorporate more of this hormonal variability throughout their lifetime and including other demographics as well into their research?
2: What um, advice do I have? Well, just do it. So I I mean, I think that the, the big thing is, you know, people don't want to, researchers, get nervous about including both sexes. And then worse yet, I think what happens is they, they just combine them, right? So they won't consider sex as a variable. They won't consider age as a variable. And these are really important things to consider as we, as we've been alluding to. And even if you have what they call a small sample size, it's still important to look at the data to see what, you know, put it, put it in a table. Even if you don't, want to analyze it, appropriate yourself to segregate the data by age and sex. And there's some good examples, even thinking about the coronavirus and COVID-19 and the the really important information we've had by looking across age and looking across sex in terms of even disease severity and disease treatments. So I would say, don't be nervous to add them. It's really important to add them. Look at what happened with the vaccines and and COVID-19, right? They didn't include pregnant People And then therefore now they didn't, you know, we're slower to, to vaccinate that population. And that's not great because you, what's happening is when you do vaccinate, when you're pregnant, you actually transfer that, those antibodies to your infant, which I think, which is great, right. Then your infant is now covered, which is fantastic. At least that's what the early data is showing us, but you know, it's important to be inclusive. And then it's not just enough to take that data. That's the first step, but then you have to look at the data with these factors in mind
3: provide opportunities for others to look at that data as well. I think it's, it's not a medical example, but when we looked at, we worked with uh, Dr Marina Adshade, who's a great economist um, that works out of UBC, and she we looked with her at some of the data that the government had been using on the risk of exposure to COVID-19 across our population, which led the reopening uh, after the first wave and the first lockdown as or or however we would uh, term that and I think they did not include gender within that um, but when we added that factor in and when we looked at the different roles and occupations by the proportions in the gender and looked at adding that in we saw gender was a huge factor and I think that just demonstrates it's not a medical example but that just demonstrates that when we look and make sure we divide by gender and we we look and consider gender as a factor, it shows how strong that influence can be. And therefore, whether we think it's just occupation or actually gender might be the driving factor in a number of these pieces, if we're not including, if we're not looking at that, then are we coming to some uh, to uh, different conclusions than we might have if we included and divided by those different variables.
2: I, I just wanna add a little bit to that because it reminded me to, to, of something else. And that is that researchers will often say, I don't have enough power to look at sex differences or gender differences. And to those of you that might not be statistical gurus, that just means how much benefit you'd get from looking at the sex. It's, it's too small of a sample size. It's just a few people. I can't really get a good understanding of the data, but... Other studies have now started to look at this. So there's a really great example in the asthma literature where they were looking at specific genetic variations and whether or not that contributed to whether or not you had a chance or risk of getting asthma. And it turns out there's, say, you know, I'm going to get the number a little wrong, but it's around 46 or 47. Say it's like these variations, 47 variations. And when they didn't include sex as a factor, it was 25. So you lost almost half of the genetic information that you could use towards something called precision medicine. And so you actually had more statistical power when you look at sex and gender within your analysis, rather than less power. And you're losing so much information, right? And in fact, there are lots of examples where a treatment might work in one sex and not in the other. And unfortunately, what happens in clinical trials is most often they don't have sex or gender as their primary outcome. And if you don't have that, that means that the clinical trial might fail. So so, so I'll give you an example, a real world example of this. And that is lazaroid, or it's colloquially known as that. And it was a, a drug that was given to stroke victims and hemorrhage victims too. And it basically, the end of the story is, it it looks like it was named Lazaroid because it literally rose people from the dead. You know, they were almost dead, uh, like Princess Bride. And then they took this drug and they were alive. That worked in males. It did not work in females. But in the last clinical trial, they did, you know, because you have to, you add the females in, and it didn't, it failed, right? Because if you put them all together and don't analyze by sex or by gender, you're going to get a null effect. You're not going to get an effect. So, so that drug is no longer on the market. You can't use that drug, even though we know it works in males. So I think sometimes there's this idea that, oh, this is, this is just about women's health and it is, (laughs) but it's going to benefit males too. Well, just by nature of looking at some of these effects.
1: So another question I had as well is besides medical research bias and inappropriate uh, research methodologies, are there any other factors that make it difficult for us to study women's health?
3: Yeah, I think there could be many factors, but I think one of the huge factors is a lack of funding for women's health. So yes, there is the the medical side of things, which Lisa has covered so well. But we actually don't have enough funding for women's health research. So that's making it extremely difficult for us to actually dedicate funding to understand these, to uncover these, to look at the unique issues that women are experiencing, whether it's the unique health issues that affect their bodies or how symptoms might manifest differently, or maybe the other broader societal um, impacts on their health. And I think it's important to mention there's a piece of work that the BC Women's Health Foundation did alongside Dr. Gallia, really, that looked... To uncover what the realities were for women's health research funding, we didn't think that it got funded as much and as often, and sadly, that was very true and more so than we'd even imagined. To pull some stats out of that, women's health research gets funded less than 8% of provincial health research funding, and across Canada, women's health researchers are awarded just 1% percent of eligible award mechanisms one percent so not only there's less grants being awarded but when Dr. Gallier and her team looked at the awards the length uh, the terms of those awards, and the amounts they actually found that women's health grants were awarded for shorter terms so a shorter duration of time and for lower funding amounts and so for some of that the the, the median range uh, the number was 200,000 Canadian dollars less so over the term so those that substantial reduction in funding has huge implications of what we can actually do and find out from a research perspective and one of the other factors I'd highlight there is we actually look within that piece of research at women as researchers because women make up the majority of women's health researchers and sadly, again, the picture is extremely stark that women receive fewer grants, they receive less funding uh, per grant, and they received uh, the any awards for a shorter period of time. And then that replicated across academia, women having lower salaries, receiving less institutional funding, underrepresented in academic positions, in less articles, win fewer prizes, appear less in symposiums. And so that really is actually having... impact on our ability to learn more about women's health and if we think about some of the pieces we've discussed so far in terms of women's health and the knowledge about women's health being so far behind if we think about that you actually need far more funding for us to be able to catch up and have enough information about women's bodies rather than continuing this trend of, of less funding so I think that's a really key factor that's actually contributing to this situation at the moment. Yeah, if I can add a personal story to that,
2: because I know stories are so helpful. The last CIHR grant, that's the Canadian Institute for Health Research grant, and that's our sort of main bread and butter for medical research in Canada. I did end up getting this grant, but so I was studying how pregnancy and motherhood, and this is in animal models, although we do some human work as well, how that impacted brain health later on in life. So in menopause, that, does that impact a risk for Alzheimer's disease? Does that increase uh, or decrease uh, effectiveness of treatments for menopause, for example? And I was told to add males, like, no, we can't fund this because you don't have any males in your design. And you know that so this is a this is an example of here's a women's health project that's being told it's not good enough because you're not comparing to males and while you know we've spent some time talking about the importance of adding sex and gender to the analysis it's not just about that so female or women's health is not just about how we compare to men and men's health right it's about how these different female unique experiences and gendered experiences might impact our health. And and we know it does. We know that hormonal contraceptives change disease risk and change treatments. We know that pregnancy and motherhood, I think I I said it's a barometer for certain diseases. So if you have high blood pressure, if you have preeclampsia, if you have gestational diabetes, and a lot of women don't even know this, but if you have that during your pregnancy, later on in life, you're at higher risk for cardiovascular disease. And it's really important for people that have been pregnant and have had some of these issues, know that so that they can talk to their physician about some of these potential. So, and why? Because you want to know how can you mitigate against these? How can you you know, change your health so that you can reduce your risk? And it's actually just even pregnancy itself. And that's not going to stop people from getting pregnant. But I think it's important for all of us to understand that, hey, this is going to impact your disease risk later on. So there's this idea that it's studying females and females only is somehow less prestigious so that's been in the medical literature as well you're more likely to get a high profile paper in nature medicine or lancet um, if you're studying males and less likely um, if you're studying a female specific health issue and that's not okay so The other thing I study is postpartum depression, and we have some models looking at that. And I have only, in my 24-year career, I've had three years of funding in that. That's it. And it's probably one of the things I'm more known for, but yet it's really hard to get funding for it. And I think it's because of the sort of bias against studies. I I don't know where that comes from, but I think one of the ways to get around that is to say, here is, which is what the BC Women's Foundation is doing, is say, here is some grant mechanisms just for female health just for women's health, just for gender diverse health, because that is what we need. I think you need those big shiny pots of gold and money because more people will get interested in it and more people are going to study it and there'll be better studies that they've designed around that.
0: Thank you for all of those wonderful examples. I'm, I'm really hearing this effective compounded sexism, really, everything from panels you know, all male panels to the larger economic gaps, and how this, in the very slow reach for equality, these issues of equity are really being left behind. So I'm wondering what, and you alluded slightly to this for Dr. Gay at the foundation, what do you think are some solutions to these problems that we can start to work towards on a societal level It feels very big, but Can you give us some examples of what the foundation is doing about that?
3: Yeah. And I think I can give some examples of what we can all do. And one of the first things is, and a large part of it is really acknowledging the disparities and ensuring that everyone's aware of them. So the, the difference between, and the unique needs of women's health is real. And Lisa alluded to it. And the impact of this in health outcomes is real. We talked about a number of examples today and But not everyone recognizes this, so it's really, and and I will put my hands up that there's a lot of things that I didn't know before I really delved down into the research about this, that of the depth of those inequities. And, you know, even when we were looking at that, the research funding models, looking at that, being aware of that, providing the data on that is really important. So... We first of all need to kind of change the discourse around women's health, that women's health is unique. There are unique ways that that symptoms manifest, that diseases will work in in women's bodies. And we need everyone from healthcare providers to have that knowledge, to policy makers to have that knowledge, for women themselves to have that knowledge, that they're not alone, to normalize this so that we're not talking about symptoms as atypical and we're just talking about them as symptoms and to give them the knowledge they're not making it up, that it's not all in their head and that they have the knowledge to advocate for themselves and also for for everyone else in wider society to recognize that women aren't making this up or it's not in their head to really stop that risk of being dismissed. So that's really about changing the discourse around women's health and everyone can play a part in that, I think. Whether you're a a woman yourself, whether you're not, whether you're a man and whether you're non-binary, just kind of recognizing that the sex and gender results in different health outcomes and results in uh, different health experiences. The second critical thing I would really say is investing in women's health research. And we definitely need to make incremental steps to ensure that funding is fair, We need to make sure award mechanisms are fair. We need to increase representation to correct these funding biases. But as I mentioned earlier, what we really need to ensure that women can not only catch up, but have that kind of equitable access to to healthcare and equitable access to and, and understanding is transformational investments. So we don't just need these incremental investments. And with kind of the stats like women have been only included in clinical trials since the 1990s, it's only 30 years incremental change in our knowledge, incremental change in investments in women's health will not catch us up soon enough. We need substantial investments and dedicated funding to ensure that women have equitable access to the health care that they need and they deserve.
2: Yeah, and I'll give you another example of this. I was thinking about this a couple of years ago when I got that ad mails. I'll give you a funding example, but I also just want to say, you know, women's health is not a niche area. I think there's this idea too, that it's just a small little You know, we're we're 50% of the population and it it shouldn't be 1% of the funding. It shouldn't be even 8% of the funding. It should be much more. And there are some success stories. So we still too early about the ice bucket challenge that was for ALS, right? But they they got a lot of money in a very short period of time. HIV, I mean, it took a long time, but they went from 2 billion a year, which is still quite a bit of money in the US to 35 billion a year in terms of funding. There's a lot of people studying it even now. And it used to be a death sentence, it's it no longer carries that kind of a death sentence so I think the the life expectancy very recently went to 70 years so from 20 years to 70 that's a huge, huge dramatic change and that's all because of the funding that went into it. Now I told you 35 billion, I don't know exactly what the amounts are for women's health, but in Canada, we said 1% of the awards and that was through a federal funding, mostly awards that was uh, through, I think, CIR. and the annual budget of CIGR is $1 billion. So, you know, we need much more. Yes. You know, comparing to our neighbors to the South, of course they have much more money and they're a larger population, but it's, they're only 10 times bigger. So really You know, we should have much more money in our health funding budget. So that's, that's another thing to lobby the government as a public, you know, I don't know if we want a nice bucket challenge, but, but we certainly need more money overall for medical and any kind of research really in Canada, because we're really woefully behind.
0: Thank you. And I just want to be cognizant that we are slightly over time. So I just wanted to open it up if there are any other issues and topics you feel quite strongly about that we haven't covered thus far, if you wanted to touch on that.
3: I think there's a couple of things that I would love to touch on. Sitting sure. there. I think I would say that in order to kind of change that narrative and change that dialogue, it's important that there is that evidence-based information that people can read and learn about. So we do have a number of short reports. We have the BC Women's Health Foundation released in her words, which you can find on the website, which highlights some of those inequities and, and the reality here in BC, but it pulls from research worldwide. We had that research divide that we talked about that Lisa's team did the amazing research on. To find out more, feel free to delve into to Lisa's research and to women's health research. I also think getting involved. If listeners do want to get involved, they can invest in women's health themselves. Maybe support one of the research awards, even if it's just a small amount. Like if it, it, it just to really, even if it. I know I say we need transformational change, but and we are getting there. But even if it is a small amount, some of the awards like Catalyst Grants or Graduate Awards are a fantastic way to. Provide small increments of funding to important women's health researchers and they can launch careers. I would also say another way is, as Lisa just mentioned, that the ice bucket challenge. If anyone's got any great ideas of whether we can, we can pull a stunt like that for women's health research, we are so open to it. And then I think finally, I would say from my perspective, it's not all doom and gloom. We've highlighted quite a lot of sad um shocking and really disappointing statistics today on our call and we do use these statistics to talk about our areas to highlight the gaps but we are starting to go in the right directions we are starting to change some of the dialogue we are starting to implement things like gender based analysis as far as we are we still need edits we still need to make sure we analyze by sex and not just including sex and gender but we are starting to see the fruits of some of the advocacy efforts that we're trying to do and trying to lead with the government and their recent budget announcements and some of their mandate letters to include elements of women's health. So I just wanted to make sure that, that kind of I end on a more positive note rather than all of the doom and gloom, because The work that we're doing and the work that our donors are supporting and the work that the WHRI, the Women's Health Research Institute, the Women's Health Research Cluster, the work that we're doing as a women's health community and a wider community is starting to to really take the traction and move in the right direction. So thanks to everyone that's involved in, in this. Yeah, I
2: would say, you know, arm yourself with information. So at the Women's Health Research Cluster, we have a Women's Health Seminar Series. It's all free. It's online. We have our own YouTube channel. Go and take a listen to them. Listen to it. What I do is I listen to some of these things while I go for my dog hikes in the woods. They're about 40 minutes, but you, you can always fast forward if you want to. But knowledge is power. And so one of the other things that I research is hormone therapy and how it might affect uh, memory in menopause and something we call neuroplasticity. So, you know, there's a lot of when I turned 50, I wanted to ensure that I had some hormone therapy because I know I look at the research all the time. It was really hard for me to get it from my doctor, but my doctor knows what I do for a living. And so i just come in and say, here's the knowledge I know. Here's the information I know. So I ended up getting some hormone therapy, Happy to talk about that another time what kind and stuff like that. Uh, then eventually she sent me to a gynecologist because she's like, oh, I don't feel comfortable prescribing you now that you're 56. Now you have to go somewhere else. And the gynecologist gave me a little bit of trouble too but once I gave her that knowledge that I had and I gave her a bunch of papers to read she actually just emailed me a little while ago and she's unfortunately retiring but she said basically you've opened my eyes to this and I'm going to ensure that at least some of the young gynecologists in the practice that is there understand that hormone therapy isn't the devil that we've been taught to think and there's Odd political reasons for this. So again, knowledge is power and don't minimize your own symptoms. A lot of people do this. And and the last thing I guess I'd say is which we you know, we haven't we talked a little bit about gender diversity. And so sometimes people get, you know, it's not just a binary, it's not just male-female. Obviously, genders, there's many different kinds of genders, and the larger LGBTQ2SI community. So it's important to collect these variables so that we can understand how this impacts health. And I would say even from an animal perspective, even looking at males and females, it's never that we're dimorphic and what dimorph- the, the sort of definition of dimorphic is polar opposite. That is not what this is about. This is about this sort of individual variability between all of us and all of our experiences. And I alluded to this earlier, but they get under our skin, right? So I don't know how much of the audience knows that any experience we have can get reflected even in the way we express our genes. And it's a whole field of research called epigenetics. And so you can imagine if you have very different experiences as a a lesbian or a non-binary or a gender fluid person, all of that can get under your skin. Men versus women, all of that will impact the expression of our genes. And then later on, disease risk. All of this we need to study and we just need more of a spotlight rather than less of a spotlight on that area.
0: Dr. Gay, Dr. Gallia, we want to thank you so much for sharing your time with us today for this wonderful conversation and for your passion, your commitment, your dedication to women's health and for highlighting the hope for what is to come. Thank
2: you. Thanks, you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: We hope this episode got a few new synapses firing for you. Be sure to subscribe on whichever platform you get your podcasts to hear our episodes when they drop every second Wednesday each month. Get in touch with us. We welcome any questions and constructive feedback. You can email us at womenshealth.interrupted at ubc.ca
1: or find us on Twitter at researchonwh, or on Instagram at WHRcluster. We would like to thank the Michael Smith Foundation, BioTalent Canada, Patreon, and the UBC Global Lounge for their generous support of this project.
0: We would also like to thank the UBC Medicine Learning Network and its wonderful staff for hosting our podcast. And a special thank you to Catherine Moore, who
1: manages the Women's Health Research Cluster for all of her work in the development of this initiative.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. Have a wonderful day or evening, wherever you are, and please take care of yourselves. Wishing you good health. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network.